Awesome. Um, well, welcome. If this is your first time at Resonate. My name is Josh. I'm the pastor here. That's Omid. That's the worship leader here. And I want to call out something very special. Joel has been with us all summer, and this is actually his last Sunday consistently. He will be back September 17th, and we'll wrangle him in as much as we possibly can. But can we just thank Joel for everything he's done this summer? Thank you, Joel. I'm the man. Um, we'll miss your floppy hair, too. I don't have that on top. Um, <laughs> there we go. Perfect. I can be him. <laughs> um, all right, well, hey, today we're talking about a really fun subject. Um, we're talking about how faith is hard. So uh, when I first came uh, to the strategy team, and we, we always brainstorm what uh, sermon series we're going to do. So, like, you know, the conversations panel, that was all of them. Um, this was all of them. And it was the summer, and we're like, what do we want to do for the summer? Uh, things get kind of hectic just in church. What do we want to tackle? And I was like, hey, I have this idea. We should focus on like fun, like we should just do a whole thing on celebration. We're in there for about two hours and we come out with this whole series based on faith is hard. So I don't know <laughs> how we went from celebration to like, no, it's just really difficult. <laughs> uh, but it's stuff that needs to be talked about. And so what we did is we realized that just faith being difficult wasn't enough. Like we need to talk about faith in every single fraction. And in fact, it was better if you guys drove the bus on that than us. So we pitched it to you guys and said, hey, why don't you tell us your questions of faith, what you think faith is. We pinned them all on a board that Bobby made, and then I have just been plucking from that board all summer long as we've been going through this series and filling in that blank, because our series is called Faith is Blank. And so this morning, we're going to get to the heart of kind of where this whole thing began, and we're going to talk about just the difficulties that we encounter in faith. Faith is hard, like, and that's okay to admit. I think in spaces like this, we need to start talking about that more. Because when we don't, and everything is shiny and good and awesome, it's really easy just to lose faith completely. Because we believe this false narrative that faith should be happiness all the time, and that's just not life. I wish it was. And it can be. But it can also be really difficult and hard. So we're going to frame this in the biblical um, story. And how we're going to do that is we're going to talk about this idea of wilderness. And what we find in the Bible is that when any character in the Bible, group of people in the Bible, encounter their true purpose and calling, it is through the wilderness. It's going out into the unknown, into places that God kind of pulls at them. They're outside their comfort zone, and they're forced to really see who they are, and they meet with God. Wilderness uh, in the Hebrew is actually the same word. It's a word called midbar. And what it means is both wilderness and speak, voice, mouth. So literally, the same word for speech and for voice is the same word used when they go out into the wilderness. Almost as if to say, this is the place that God speaks. This is the place you're going to encounter God. It's funny that we mentioned the hike thing, by the way. Um, I, so I grew up going to a, a hiking camp. I called it a fat camp. My parents uh, refused to admit that. But I was pudgy, and they sent me there because I was pudgy. <laughs> but basically... Uh, they would send a group of seven. It's just wild that this camp existed, and it's since shut down, and this is a shocker. Um, they would send seventh graders into the mountains, like in the Adirondacks in upper state New York, and our only counselor would be like a 16-year-old. And it'd be like a week-long trip, and we'd just be with a 16-year-old. Like if someone broke their leg or something. I mean, it was a very responsible 16-year-old, but like there's a line. So anyway, I went to this camp. And the idea of the camp was you would, uh, on the weekends, you'd be at what I would call the fun part, and then in the week, you'd be in what I would call hell. In the week, you would have to plan out your backpacking trip 
that would last the whole of the weekdays. So five days, Monday through Friday, and then you come back on Friday, and then you get ice cream because we all survived. Like, that's not <laughs> fun. So you go out into the wilderness, and uh, I got very, very good at coming up with every single excuse in the book to get out of these wilderness trips. <laughs> One time I faked sick, another time I said that I like, really hurt my leg and couldn't possibly walk, and so I would get charged with like, tasks during the week and I would be one of like three campers that was still on the base camp. And this is literally the truth. I would rather clean the camp than go on these trips. <laughs> so I would literally do that. Uh, but when I was forced to go, you know, I, I would go and I'd, I'd be happy and then I'd get ice cream and we'd come back. Uh, but I also gained a lot of skills. Like, it, the wilderness is a place that when you encounter it, like, you're forced to grow up. And that's true out of almost every single culture. In most cultures, like, that sort of, like, call from childhood to manhood or womanhood is a call out into the wild, like a call into the wilderness. We see this in all of our stories, too. Any good story requires a hero coming from something comfortable into the unknown. It's just the way that we're made and it's the way that shaped us. The way that it shaped me at this wilderness camp was that I got very good at playing pool because <laughs> I would avoid the day hikes, which on Saturday you had the option to take a day hike. And I'm like, seriously, enough with the hiking. I'm loving this hiking trip, by the way. I love hiking now. Back when I was a pudgy seventh grader, not so much. Um, but I became very good at playing pool. So good, in fact, that I began to hustle other campers for their money. Um, it was always destined for ministry, you could tell. So I. <laughs> I would get very, very good at pool, and I would play them in pool, and then it got so good that I eventually had enough money saved that I realized, so there's no technology allowed at this camp whatsoever, and for an indoor kid like myself, I was just jonesing for a movie or something. So I actually found a Radio Shack, one town over, that sold a black and white television, and I bought a black and white television with the money that I had sharked from pool and used it in the after hours uh, while the, when the... 16-year-old campers had gone to sleep. Um, so it was, a, it was a formative, formative time in my life. <laughs> Wilderness teaches us who we are. In my case, it's a pudgy pool shark. But in other cases, it teaches us to be more human. It teaches us what our calling really is. When we step out of our comfort zone and into something uncomfortable, into something unknown, we're going to learn twice as fast as we will if we were just sitting on the couch, right? as God meets us in the wilderness, and maybe not so much on the couch. So I'm going to pray for our time this morning as we dive in uh, to this wilderness idea. Lord, thank you so much uh, for this space, for this time. I thank you for Joel and his leadership over the summer, Lord. Um, may we spend a lot of time after this just giving him a hug and thanking him and wishing him well, and then can't wait to have him back. And Lord God, as I uh, talk about what it means to be in the wilderness and how it's okay to struggle. It's okay to be bored in our faith. That's okay. I pray that you would really, really make that the truth this morning in our hearts and that we would learn that sometimes being put in that awkward position is the best thing for us. Amen. Um, so this, this is really, really strong in the scriptures, this theme of wilderness. Uh, there's almost this wilderness genealogy that kind of goes on through the scriptures. So at the very beginning, we have Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve are the first people, and God, uh, God says, you can do anything you want in this glorious place. You just can't eat from that tree. And naturally, like all humans do, they're like, I'm going straight to that tree. So they go to the tree, eat the fruit, and then they are actually forced out of the garden and into the wilderness. From the very, very first story we have in the scriptures, we see, we see this pattern starting of comfort into discomfort into who you really are. So we have Adam and Eve, 
Then we have uh, Cain and Abel, and Cain and Abel, there's a whole murder thing that goes down there, and, and they're forced to then leave and go out into the wilderness and become nomadic farmers. Then we have uh, Abraham, which is sort of the, just the father of this great nation, and uh, his, he's called to leave, just literally to go, like out of your comfort, out of what you, 75 years old, this guy's 75, and literally at that point, God goes, now is the time that you're really going to begin living. Pack up your things. I'm calling you to this promised land that I have for you. And then his son Isaac is forced to leave into the unknown as well. And then Isaac's son Jacob has to set out into the wilderness because he tricks his father into his inheritance, and there's a bowl of soup. It's a great story. Um, and then after that, Jacob's son Joseph is literally sold into slavery and forced out into the wilderness and into Egypt. And then the story really picks up from here, and this is where we get to Moses. And Moses is born in Egypt, but due to a confrontation in which he actually kills an Egyptian soldier, he's forced to run. And where does he run? To the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness that he encounters the burning bush, and he encounters God. And he finds his purpose to then come back. And with that, Moses literally calls the entire nation of Israel into the wilderness. Right? So we have this pattern, and the whole narrative and story of the scriptures is all based on this, you're comfortable here, but I want you over here. Like, your life looks real great the way that it is, but I have something even greater for you. And if you trust me, and if you actually walk with me into this unknown, and it's going to be scary, and it's going to be difficult, and it's going to be hard, but that's the stuff that makes it into the scripture. This is the stuff that gets written down, because it's that crucially important. The main narrative that I want to talk about this morning um, is uh, Jesus. And Jesus is actually called into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights right at, the, right at the start of his ministry. So he's literally baptized, and then the scripture says the spirit takes him into the wild. So I'm going to read this scripture. It's a little uh, lengthy, so stick with me. Um, and it's the Bible, so it's not my fault. Here we go. Um, this is out of Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Uh, it says, Then the Spirit led Jesus up into the wilderness so that the devil might tempt him. I mean, really cool spirit. After Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was starving. The tempter came to him and said, Since you are God's son, command these stones to become bread. Jesus replied, It's written, People won't live only by bread, but by every word spoken by God. After that, the devil brought him into the holy city and stood him up at the highest point of the temple. And pay attention to that. He's on the temple. He said to him, since you are God's son, throw yourself down, for it is written, I will command my angels concerning you, and they will take you up in their hands so that you, so that you won't hit your foot on a stone. Jesus replied again, it's written, don't test the Lord your God. Then the devil brought him to a very high mountain. So he's just, he's upping the ante every single time. We've gone from a rock to a temple to a mountain. Then the devil brought him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said, I'll give you all of these if you just bow down and worship me. Jesus responded, go away, Satan, because it's written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And the devil left him and the angels came and took care of him. So this is important because this is how Jesus starts his life. This is how he starts his ministry. This ministry that's known for love and grace and redemption starts in the wilderness starving, <laughs> right? And it says that the, the Spirit literally led him there. So this isn't an accident. He's following God into this uncomfortable place where he's going to be tested and pulled apart. And what's wildly 
interesting about that and what speaks to our faith and how things can get hard and difficult in those periods of wilderness is that everything that Jesus is tempted in, in that instance and in that moment, is stuff that looks right on paper. Like, turn this into food. And that's not a metaphor for just, like, turn this into food for yourself. When scholars look at that text, they look at it and they say, that's a metaphor for him just literally solving world hunger. Like, if you're this powerful, turn this into food and feed everyone. Right? And Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. And then the devil takes him to the height of the temple. And this would have been the showiest thing in the world. Right? And up at the temple, this is where all the business goes down in the town. This is like the, the it's center city. And he says, jump from here, and I know the angels will swoop in and save you. It'll be this dramatic event, and people will see that you are invincible, right? Like that you cannot be stopped. And still, Jesus goes, no. And then he takes him to a mountain. We're getting higher and higher and higher up. And he says, look at all of these kingdoms, and basically offers Jesus an empire. He says, hey, you can be an empire. So I want... And Jesus says, no. So I want us to pay attention. There's, there's stones, and Jesus says, no. There's a temple, and invincibility, and Jesus says, no. And then there's an empire, and Jesus says, no. And the reason that that's important is because Jesus actually does all three of these things, but not in the way that Satan wanted. Not in the way that we want, either. He didn't feed himself in that instance, but he does, just a couple chapters later, feed 5,000 people, just with a couple loaves of bread, and some fish. That's powerful. And guess what? He's giving it away. All that he does is constantly, not for selfish gain or the things that we would look on paper and go like, yeah, that makes sense. Empire, invincibility, I'll take that, check. And uh, food, no. It, he does nothing for himself. It's always to give something away. So he doesn't, do, eat the, he doesn't turn the stones into bread, but he does feed 5,000 people later. He doesn't jump off of a temple and proves to everyone that he cannot die. Rather, he dies on a cross alone and humiliated to save us all. And then finally, on the mountain where he's offered an empire, he's offered an empire and he says no, but he ushers in a kingdom where he's not just the rich guy on the throne, but he's the guy that's actually washing the people's feet. The reason faith is hard is because it doesn't always look right. Like, that's confusing stuff, and it doesn't feel right in the moment. Even Judas, this is a fascinating story, and I've never really thought about it until this week. Even Judas, Judas walks alongside Jesus, and if you don't know the story of uh, Jesus and Judas, Judas is the one who eventually turns Jesus in and betrays him and all that good stuff, and he gets a really bad rap. However, we never really truly take the time to look at the humanity behind Judas and what he was trying to do. You see, these were all a bunch of Jewish people who were walking with a supposed savior, and their idea of the savior was they had a very, very, very oppressive Roman government that taxed them into oblivion. In fact, like if you really study it, they would tax them so hard that they just barely had enough to live on. They're living in oppression. And if they couldn't pay their taxes, they were either thrown in prison or thrown into slavery. I mean, it was terrible, terrible stuff. These Romans were not good people to the Jewish people. And so what they're thinking Jesus is going to do, because it's obvious, obviously, if this guy is the chosen one, the Messiah, he's going to free us from this oppression that's happening right here, right now. He's going to overthrow this government. There's going to be a big war, and we have the invincible, mighty Jesus on our side, and there's no way that we will fail, right? So that's Judas's plan all along. He's thinking, We're, I'm a part of this movement. This is crazy. We're going to overthrow the biggest empire in the world. 
And as he walks with Jesus, it must have become gradually very, very apparent that that wasn't going to go down the way that Judas saw fit. So Judas, in his own mind, goes, well, okay, if he's not going to do it, I know that people are fiercely loyal to this Jesus guy. So if I hand him into the authorities and he gets imprisoned and he gets killed, there'll be an uprising and a revolt, and then we'll finally have the war that we want. He followed Jesus, was right next to him for all those years, and he still couldn't understand that this kingdom was different, that it was a little more difficult than what he wanted on paper. But that's the mighty, mighty way of the kingdom, is that it never looks right on paper. It's always upside down, mismatched, and awesome. That's the way of Jesus. And I think a lot of us have this problem when it comes to our faith and in our churches or whatever, but we will walk through life and we believe that our faith is supposed to bring us X, 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 right? It's supposed to bring us this, 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 and if it doesn't, if it's failing us, then it's not worth having. We're taught a lot that this faith thing is only happiness, and so when tragedy hits, when the despair stuff hits, when the stuff we talked about last week where we lamented over all the crazy stuff that's going on in the world hits, then it's really hard to rectify this happy faith with this broken world, right? It is about happiness, it's about joy, more so, but it's also about like when things are difficult and when they are hard, faith is the thing that we can turn to because God has been there all along. It's just a matter of inviting him along the path. I, um, I uh, had to, I'd locked myself out of my apartment twice this week. <laughs> this is a good story. Um, my parents never locked their doors growing up, uh, just like never, even if they went on vacation, they would like keep, it was a really bad habit and I inherited that habit. And so Chelsea will scream at me if I leave the door open. So now when I go on a run, I take my key off my keychain, put it in my pocket, and then lock the door and shut it. However, once I get changed again, that key often remains in those shorts <laughs> and does not make it out the door. So twice this week, I lock myself out. And I promise this is going to have a point. This is where things get difficult. So I lock myself out, and I realize I'm going to have to go drive uh, to Chelsea's work, which is in the Palisades at a Christian school. Um, that's important later. Christian school, and I've got to get there uh, to get the key because she's going to go to a lunch meeting, and then she's going to be gone, and I'll miss her, and I won't be able to do anything that day. So we only have one car. So I'm thinking, well, maybe I'll ride my bike. And I was like, no, it's going to take too long. And then I realized, oh, I can take a wave car. Has anybody ever taken a wave car or seen them around town? What they are are these little tiny cars that have this giant billboard. So essentially, you can drive it for free for two hours. Uh, this is like a Waze commercial. You can drive it for free for two hours, uh, and you're just basically a roaming billboard. Um, so I ride my bike to go to the wave car station where they have all these wave cars like parked. And all of them look exactly alike, except for one. And this is just my life. And I go, that's definitely the one I'm getting. It's bright pink. And it's an advertisement for a swimwear company. And the top is, I wanted to take a picture of it. And it wasn't even appropriate for this space. <laughs> so I'm driving this car with this giant bikini lady up on top. And I'm realizing, like, oh my god, I'm going into a church parking lot right now <laughs> to visit my kindergartner wife. Like, so like I rolled in, and I drove, and I parked way on the edge of the lot, and I like walked all the way up to avoid anyone being seen. Um, but the point is, and I realized this as I was prepping for the sermon, uh, it's those types of stories where in the moment I'm like, oh, I want to just like, like hit myself, right? But it's those types of stories that are worth telling. 
it's not the ones where it's like, oh man, I showed up and I just kept winning. And it, everything just kept going my way. Those aren't interesting stories. The good stories we have are when things get difficult and hard. And so in those moments, and in that moment, like what I've taught myself to do is just to throw my head back, chuckle, and invite Jesus along for the ride, right? Because in those moments, when we just say like, God, I'm inviting you into this with me. As ridiculous as that moment was, God, I'm inviting you on this ride. Please shield people's eyes. <laughs> God, I'm inviting you into the difficult parts because I know that you are with me. And it's not as if like inviting him magically to just like poof, he appears and he wasn't there before. Inviting him is for us. It's a lot like uh, writing a love letter. If you write a love letter, right, and you scrutinize on this love letter. Like you are every, handwritten, every single line is scrutinized and just thought through meticulously and you write it and it's only like two paragraphs long but that bad boy took you like three hours, right? And you give it to the person, they read it in a matter of seconds. Who is that love note really for? The love note is for you because you took the time out to scrutinize and meticulously think through your feelings towards that person and whether you did a good job of articulating or not, you know it just a little bit better. That's what we're doing when we're inviting God into our lives, into the, our presence. We're literally saying, like, I just want, I want to be aware that you're here and you're with me through this. It actually started for me when I was a really young kid. My mom um, got really ill when I was about in fifth grade. We were living in Amsterdam at the time. And the plan was like, we were gonna move to Amsterdam and we were just gonna stay there. Like, my dad was a church planter and the church that he did there went really, really well. And it was a beautiful time for my family. And we were just gonna go like, okay, this is home now. Uh, but my mom began to get ill and she would get really, really tired. Like, and so like, it, it went from like two hours a day that she would get tired to three hours a day to four hours a day. It eventually ended up that she was bedridden for the better part of six months. And no one could figure out what was going on. I just remember this visual of like my dad would, every day he would buy this box of chocolates for her and it got to the point where she just didn't want to eat them anymore and I remember the, the stack just piled high to here and you could measure the days that she had been in the bed by the boxes of chocolate. And my dad in those moments was the strongest person I've ever seen in my life. He like raised us three kids, did all of that. My mom eventually had to go back to the States to get medical care, and he was alone with us for like three or four months. And when you're a kid and this stuff hits and you don't know what's wrong, eventually she did heal and she got better because she got the right medical treatment and everything, but when you're a kid and you don't know what's going on and you think you may be losing a parent, faith really doesn't make a lot of sense. And I remember asking my dad, like, I, I don't understand. And especially because this is the logic of like, you know, a, a seven-year-old or whatever. I was like, you're a pastor. This stuff isn't supposed to happen, <laughs> right? Like, you're, you're supposed to be close to this God person, and I don't get why mom will get sick. And my dad just, I, like, will never forget, just looked at me. He was like, Josh, that's, that's not the way that this faith thing works. He said, your mom is here, but your faith can get stronger as your mom is ill because you can trust and lean into God. It's moments like this, that God is real and apparent and we need him. It's in the happy parts where we, we think happiness is the goal, but when we're truly happy, a lot of times we forget God is even there, 
right? It's not in those moments where we're like, oh, I'm so stoked on life. You know what I should do right now? Spend an hour in prayer. <laughs> it's the moments when everything hits the fan that we're like, man, I need a savior. I need a God. So faith is hard, but faith is hard for a reason. It's difficult because that's what shows us that God is real. So it shows us God is walking with us. There's this amazing story, and I'll end with this, in the scriptures of this guy named Lazarus. And all we know of Lazarus is that he was a really good friend of Jesus, like a really good friend. And uh, Lazarus' sisters come to Jesus. He's in a faraway place, and they say, hey, my brother, my brother is dying, and you need to come because if you come, you can heal him, and everything's going to be fine. And he does this really weird thing where he waits. He doesn't react. He just goes like, okay, and like moves on. And Lazarus does pass away, and then Jesus goes to visit the family. And when he sees the sisters and the family and the mom, and they are weeping because their brother, their son, has died, Jesus does something remarkable and loving. And I'm so thankful for this verse in the scripture. It's the shortest scripture we have, and it simply says, Jesus wept. And if you think about that, it's not like, oh, man, like, I, like, it's not Jesus arriving and going, oh, I messed up. I missed it. So, like, if I was here, this could have been better. No, he's sitting with the people who have experienced loss, and he's experiencing that loss with them. He's literally crying with them. That means that we have a creator of the universe that when stuff is really bad, he's not in some far-off place. He might just be sitting right next to us crying with us. It's the most comforting picture in the world. And I'm so glad that we have a savior that wept and not a savior that decided to jump off that temple and prove his superhuman powers. <laughs> right? I am so happy that the way that Jesus approaches us is in our brokenness and in our hurt and in our pain. And that's where we can choose to grow or we can choose to abandon completely. So I pray as, as trials hit, as big things hit our lives, that we would choose to learn to grow that we would choose to invite Jesus along for the ride and that we would choose to step into a greater faith because it's always those points in the wilderness that God is saying, hey, I'm going to shape you through this. You're going to learn through this and I'm going to be right here the whole way. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you so much uh, just for this morning, for our time. I thank you that um, we can embrace the struggle. The faith can be difficult, and it can still be faith. And I just, uh, I pray as we worship together and as we take communion together, that, Lord, you would just be with us. Amen. Um, so this morning.